and welcome to this first Herbert Smith Freehills Insurance podcast. My name is Sarah Irons and I'm a professional support consultant in the insurance disputes team here at HSF. I'm joined today by our global head of insurance disputes, Paul Lewis, to talk about the COVID-19 business interruption insurance test case and the Supreme Court handed down its judgment on the 15th of January in that case. Paul, thank you for joining us today on this podcast. You led the HSF team who acted for the FCA in representing the interests of policyholders. Yes, thanks, Sarah, and hello, everyone. I'm delighted to talk you through the Supreme Court's findings on the case and hopefully offer some insights as someone for whom this case formed a large focus in 2020. Yes, I'm sure it did. So this judgment was far from a rubber stamping of the High Court's ruling, and so we set ourselves quite a challenge today to distill the lengthy judgment into this podcast. We have indeed. Let's try. As befits the year of 2020, this was an unprecedented case on many fronts with an expedited timetable. And in the space of just seven months, proceedings were commenced and the case heard by both the High Court and Leapfrog to the Supreme Court. Paul, can you begin by talking us through who was involved and what happened procedurally? Sure. Well, the case was procedurally novel as we had to work out as a regulator a way of actually getting the courts to hear the dispute at all. Uh, And so what we did was we identified something called the financial market test scheme that had been set up to allow for urgent judicial interpretations of issues facing financial markets. Now that scheme had never been used before and so we were Uh, very much uh, breaking new ground, but the court were very keen to see the scheme tested and so accommodated us really from the word go. What we did was work with insurers very closely and settled on 21 lead policy wordings to be tested in the case, which were underwritten by eight defendant insurers. The aim was simply to produce a representative sample of the wordings themselves. As you just said, we we, we actually only commenced the proceedings on the 9th of June, and that culminated in the Supreme Court handing down its judgment on the 15th of January. Now look, I mean, as you'll have seen from the press uh, and some media speculation, This was a huge undertaking, but the important thing was that it was very much a collaborative approach between the Financial Conduct Authority and the insurers involved. And therefore, we worked very closely together to identify the policy wordings. Now, I'm not saying the case wasn't hard fought. It it was, but at no point did insurers try to derail the process And the short point was we managed to get guidance on as much as we could in as quick a time as possible to hopefully help policyholders get a little bit more clarity based on on where we were. Great. And so what were the main issues in the case? Well, they actually focused on extensions to corporates' property damage insurance policies, uh, which were non-damage business interruption extensions that lurked in these property damage policies and to be fair probably had not really been looked at for many many years but they just happened to be the ones that in this unique set of circumstances we faced in 2020 had the best chance of responding to the events. 
Yeah, absolutely. It might be just helpful if we pause there and just remind everybody very briefly what a non-damage business interruption extension actually is. I think that's a very good idea. So business interruption insurance is the element of insurance that will cover a corporate for its loss of profits and additional expenses that it suffered as a result of insured damage to physical property, such as following a fire or, or flood. But many policies include as an extension to that normal cover, cover that actually will provide business interruption cover even absent physical damage to a business's premises themselves. Hence why it's called non-damage business interruption cover, because you don't need damage to get in there. And as I said earlier on, it's this cover that could, in certain circumstances, respond to a pandemic such as this. Great. So we've explained that it's the non-damage BI extensions that we're concerned with here. Let's go back to the main issues that we were talking about. And my understanding, they were looking at three particular clauses, weren't they, in, in this case? That's right. We looked at clauses that provided cover in the event of an outbreak of what typically was referred to as a notifiable disease. We also then looked at these extensions that covered prevention of access to business premises. And thirdly, what became known as hybrid clauses, which had elements of the disease clauses and elements of the prevention of access clauses. But it is important to be aware right at the outset that there were certain elements that we didn't choose to look at um, because we simply couldn't in the time available. And so anything that, for example, required medical evidence or something like that, we couldn't look at. Um, It was, however, based on feedback that the FCA had received, important for us to look at trends clauses, causation, and the well-known case of Orient Express Hotel. Great, and we're going to look at those in in more detail, each of those clauses that you've mentioned, and also the trends clauses and causation. But before we do so, let's just step back and think about some of the sort of key events surrounding the first lockdown that you're looking at in the case I'm conscious that in some ways the start of this pandemic seems like a lifetime ago, but actually it was only um, 10 months ago. So could you just take us through the specific events that the court was interested in in this case? Sure. Well, I mean, as you will all remember, we we started to hear about this new virus in, in January of 2020. But really, our lives continued on pretty much as as normal. But the World Health Organization declared on the 11th of March that COVID was a pandemic. And eventually that led to uh, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, making his first public announcement to the British public on the 16th of March, telling us for the first time that we must stay at home and stop non-essential contact. Now, of course, we've all been used to those announcements which have continued on asking us to do various things. Um, But in the period we were looking at, there were two actual legal regulations that came into force, one on the 21st of March and one on the 26th of March, that actually legally obliged certain types of business to close. Yes, and we're we're going to see later the significance of that distinction between the directions from the Prime Minister, as you've described, and those legal rulings. So let's go back to the clauses. As I say, we're going to go through each of the clauses and then turn to causation. 
starting with the clauses can we start first with disease clauses and perhaps you can just take us through what they tend to cover sure so these clauses typically in a form that provide business interruption cover for interruption so disruption to an insured's business following an outbreak of notifiable disease or contagious disease or words to that effect within a specified radius of the business premises. Now, when the Supreme Court came to look at these clauses, it actually took a narrower approach to what they meant than the High Court. And they said that what one needed was an occurrence of the disease uh, it within the radius. And that was the focus of the clause. It wasn't responsive to the disease as a whole, but it was responsive to the actual person who contracted the disease within the, the radius. And so they differed from the High Court, which was very much seeing the notifiable disease in, in the sense of the outbreak of the disease. But the Supreme Court said, said no. They very much said that the only loss contemplated by this clause was loss that was caused by the occurrence, i.e. the individual outbreak or outbreaks within the radius themselves. So stopping there then, one might expect actually that the policies containing those clauses might not then respond to COVID-19 losses. Yes, that's right. And in many ways, the Supreme Court agreed with insurers' interpretation of the clauses themselves, so the actual legal construction of the clauses. But where they differed from the High Court and where they disagreed with insurers was on the principles of causation. And really, I think two principles underpin that. The first is that, as a matter of principle, um, an insured peril that acts in combination with many other similar but uninsured events to bring about a loss can be a proximate cause of the loss, even if the occurrence of the insured peril is neither necessary nor sufficient to bring about the loss by itself. Now, that perhaps sounded a little complicated, and I hope I will explain that a little bit more later on. But the Supreme Court was influenced by construction because they agreed with the High Court and said that the disease clause were not confined to cover for losses resulting only from the case within the radius, because the clauses did not say that. And it considered that it was significant that the type of disease that was being contemplated was a disease that could affect a wide area. And so what did that mean, taking that all into account? Well, going, going back to that last point I just made, because the policy envisaged cover for a wide area of, of disease, um, the Supreme Court concluded that no reasonable policyholder would suppose that if an outbreak of an infectious disease occurred, which included cases within the relevant radius and was sufficiently serious to interrupt the policyholder's business, then all cases of the disease would necessarily occur only within the radius. Rather, it would be reasonable to assume that they would occur outside the radius as well. So therefore, it said in that context, the legal but-for causation test was not the appropriate causation test to apply in these circumstances. Rather, the test the Supreme Court articulated, namely that causation could be established 
if an insured peril combined with many other similar uninsured events brought about a loss with a sufficient degree of inevitability, even if the occurrence of the insured peril was not necessary nor sufficient of itself to bring about the loss. So applying this analysis, the localized occurrence of the disease could be the proximate cause of the loss, which is the key requirement, because it combined with all the other cases of disease brought about the government's response and therefore the policyholders' losses. Thanks, Paul. And as you say, we're going to come on and look in a little bit more detail about the causation decision of the Supreme Court. So that's disease clauses. And now let's turn to prevention of access and hybrid clauses. Could you just give us an, a brief explanation again of what these clauses generally provide cover for? Of course. So a prevention of access clause generally provides cover for business interruption losses resulting from public authority intervention, preventing access to or use of an insured's premises. As I said in the introduction, a hybrid clause combines the main elements of disease and prevention of access. So it requires some form of public authority intervention following an outbreak of a disease. Now, the Supreme Court focused on the nature of the public authority intervention required to trigger the clause, and specifically whether the intervention had to have the force of law or not, and also the nature of the prevention or the hindrance of access or use required to trigger the clause. Okay, so why don't we look at each of those in turn, the, the, the different elements that the Supreme Court focused on. If we look first at the um, meaning of restrictions imposed mean, and by that we're looking at the nature of the intervention required to trigger the clause. What were the findings of the Supreme Court on that point? Well, the Supreme Court took a broader view than the High Court and did not accept that a restriction must always have the force of law. Its focus on the broadening out from the force of law contemplated that this scenario was akin to a public health officer that turned up at a restaurant and directed that restaurant to close as a result of the discovery of vermin, whereas the actual local authority order ordering the restaurant to close wouldn't happen until the next day. To be honest, the Supreme Court was clearly uncomfortable with the idea that on the High Court and insurer's analysis, a business that quite understandably chose to follow the instruction of Mr Johnson, even though that didn't have the force of law, could, when their claim came to be adjusted, be in a worse position than a policyholder that had ignored it and waited to be legally told to close. They just didn't feel that was right. Understood. That does seem to make some sense. And so then that's the first element that they looked at. The second was the nature of the prevention or hindrance to the access. So really, what does the words inability to use or prevention of access actually mean? What did they find on that point? Well, they, they agreed with the argument put forward by the FCA that uh, the requirement of an inability to use could be satisfied either if the policyholder was unable to use the premises for a particular part of its business activities. So that's the first thing. Or if it was unable to use a particular part of the premises for its business activities. So it contemplated that it could be either 
a part of the business activities that were affected or part of the premises that were affected. Because in both those situations, there could be a complete inability to use that particular element. So just to try and illustrate that, and using the illustration used by the Supreme Court, they said that a golf course, if it had been allowed to remain open, um, but its clubhouse had to close and therefore couldn't serve food and drink and host functions, they said that the golf club in that scenario could still claim for the loss of the revenue from its clubhouse because there was an inability to use a discrete part of its business premises. Okay, so that's the the triggers then for for the prevention of access clauses. Can you talk us through now the, the findings on causation in relation to those clauses? Yes, well, the High Court, similar to the way they treated the disease clauses, they gave a very broad interpretation of the insured peril. And because it had construed the insured peril widely, it therefore basically used that to say, well, any loss connected with any elements of the insured peril would be caused by the insured peril. The Supreme Court got to the same answer as the High Court, but by a different route, and this is why it's important. They didn't approach causation on the basis of a wide insured peril. In fact, similar to the way they'd construed the disease clauses, they construed the insured peril narrowly. They said that each element of the insured clause effectively operated to narrow down the insured peril. So if you started with the danger or emergency, that then had to cause the public authority action, which then had to cause the prevention of access or to, to use or, 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 or access of the premises. That then had in turn to cause the business interruption loss. And they said each link that I've just described narrows the insured peril. But a key difficulty, so they again agreed with insurers on that, but a key difficulty for insurers was that If you don't strip out all of the elements of the insured peril, it becomes difficult adequately to identify what elements you do strip out. So the court found if you followed insurer's approach, i.e. of applying but for causation to the narrow insured peril, the counterfactual possession against which actual revenue should be compared is a world in which the insured premises was not subject to the prevention of access but everything else in the world stayed the same. Now, you can see that that might result in a windfall for the insured. Instead, the Supreme Court found that where the High Court and insurer's analysis had gone wrong was to ask the question, what would the financial position have been absent the insured peril? The effect of that approach is to provide cover only for loss caused solely and exclusively by the insured peril which they didn't feel was what the policy said or intended. The Supreme Court found that the elements of the composite insured peril were inextricably connected in that the elements and their effects on the policyholder's business all arose from the same underlying cause, namely in our case, COVID-19, and that those elements would still have depressed the insured's revenue even if they hadn't actually resulted in prevention of access. However, in the court's view, as with the disease clauses, it would undermine the commercial purpose of the cover to treat 
what are known as concurrent but causally linked causes as diminishing the scope of the indemnity. So where the insurance is restricted to particular consequences of an adverse event, such as the closure of the premises, the Supreme Court felt that the parties could not have intended other consequences of that event, which are inherently likely to arise, to restrict the scope of the indemnity. The result that gives us, therefore, is that once the policy is triggered, the claim still falls to be adjusted on the basis of a counterfactual where none of the uninsured, inextricably linked elements, in our case put simply COVID-19 and its effects, can be set up as competing causes as against the prevention of access that operate to reduce the loss. That's really interesting then on, on causation. And we've We've looked there at how the analysis of the Supreme Court had an impact on the, the two clauses we've been looking at. But perhaps let's look a little bit more broadly now as to how the Supreme Court reached its key conclusions on causation, because I'm very conscious that this issue received much more significant attention than it did in the High Court. Absolutely. So, so there was a fundamental question which was at the heart of the Supreme Court judgment. Insurance lawyers and insurance professionals know that you need a proximate cause identified of your loss. But the question really at the heart of this case was, was but-for causation needed? And can it be a proximate cause if one of many proximate causes? But-for is about saying, but for the event or issue, would the loss still have happened? And on insurance case, if the answer to that is, yes, it would still have happened, there would be no causation. Now, this matters for all types of the policies we were looking at, because COVID happened all over the country. And so showing the loss would not have happened without the specified local cases within, say, a 25-mile radius was always going to be challenging under the disease clauses. So just to give one example... But for one person who contracted COVID in a village, or indeed the whole village, would the shops in the village still have suffered yet loss? The answer to that is probably yes. So the insurer's argument that you must always and inevitably satisfy the but-for test was rejected. The Supreme Court acknowledged that the but-for test is often a valuable starting point. However, it was not necessary to show that but as against issues which insurers were raising, the disease outside the policy area, the pandemic, the public reaction to it. Because, as I said earlier on, what the Supreme Court found were all of those factors were so closely related to the insured risk, or indeed were the origin of it. So the Supreme Court concluded that the proximate cause can be one of many, Therefore, really, the court didn't deviate into new principles, but said that but for was not required in all cases, and certainly was not applicable here in respect of closely connected, inextricably linked causes. Great. Thanks, Paul. Um, I'd like to turn now to trends clauses, which the court also looked at. But can you remind us, just before we get into the detail, what a trends clause is? Sure. So... Business interruption policies will include wording that sets out how the insured's losses should be quantified 
by reference to matters such as loss of profit or additional expenses that a policyholder's incurred. Now, they typically contain trends clauses. And what that means is it allows insurers to adjust loss that a business has suffered to make sure that it takes account of business trends that would have impacted the business in any event had the insured peril not arisen. Which is obviously an important issue in this particular case. And so what did the Supreme Court decide on trends clauses? Well, insurers tried to argue that downturns during the indemnity period were a trend and that they could be used to reduce the baseline revenue or turnover for any claim. And they set up various elements of the impact of the disease on all of us to say that even if the precise insured peril was stripped out, then particular businesses would have suffered a business downturn, a trend in any event. The Supreme Court said no. They found persuasive um, historical analysis that trends clauses, in fact, were only ever intended to strip out downturns that weren't closely connected with the insured peril itself. And so what they said was that you couldn't use trends clauses to reduce claims for matters that were closely connected to the cause of the loss. And as I said earlier on, the court also at our request revisited the Orient Express Hotels case. Now, one interesting aside was that Two of the law lords in the test case were in fact involved in the Orient Express case. Now that case was actually to do with a hotel in New Orleans that was very badly damaged in Hurricane Katrina. And what happened was that the insurers in that case successfully used the trends clause to say that the whilst of course the hotel was badly damaged and they would pay for the repair of the hotel, the property damage to the hotel itself was not the cause of the actual downturn in the hotel's revenue because that hotel revenue would have been depressed in any event because of the damage the hurricane had caused to the city of New Orleans itself. And the Supreme Court agreed with us that 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 was a wrong analysis because on causation, what it said was the loss was caused by both the damage to the hotel, which was insured, and the damage to the wider area, New Orleans, which was uninsured, but not excluded. And hence, damage to the hotel was approximate cause of the loss. So the loss is caused by the hurricane to the area which itself caused the damage to the hotel, could not be set up as a trend. And in the same way, COVID and the reactions which caused losses could not be a trend either. And so fortunately, the judges that were involved in the Orange Express hotel case admitted that actually having reconsidered the position, they found that case to be wrongly decided. And presumably that finding is going to have far-reaching implications beyond this particular case. Yes, potentially yes. Now, the Supreme Court was very careful to make clear that whether such principles would apply will turn closely on the construction of the policy wording and the cover it is objectively intended to provide. But the Supreme Court's conclusions certainly have potential significance for determining the scope of cover under insurance policies generally. 
beyond those considered in the COVID-19 business interruption test case. Yes, indeed. And the final issue I just wanted to touch on was was what the court found on pre-trigger downturns. Yes. Well, this was an issue that we had heard from policyholders that was a real concern to them. And if we all put our minds back to early March, you know, and take hospitality uh, venues, they were already beginning to see a downturn in trade before they actually were forced to close. And so what the concern was, was that because the policy trigger event had not happened, even though they'd experienced a downturn, was that insurers would somehow set up that downturn as a trend of the business and therefore look to adjust the loss as if the lower revenue at the time of the trigger of the policy should be treated as the baseline. And therefore, that would result in a lower indemnity. Now, we didn't succeed at the High Court with this argument that that should be ignored. But fortunately, the Supreme Court disagreed with the High Court. And really, it's consistent with its findings on trends clauses and causation generally. Because what they said was that the trends clauses could not avail the insurers during the period of insurance. But equally, nor could they use the same inextricably linked events and matters in advance of the trigger. So really, they applied exactly the same logic to the application of trends clauses after and before the trigger. And what they said was the cause which was inextricably linked could not be used by insurers in the policy period or before it. Thanks, Paul. Now, we've obviously covered the case in quite a lot of detail there. But just stepping back... And to sum up, where does this leave corporates with who may have policies with these types of clauses in them? Well, the immediate effect of the judgment is to broaden those policies that can claim and hopefully remove some of the roadblocks on quantum. Policyholders who believe they've got qualifying cover should proceed to advance those claims and they will be subject to um, analysis by insurers in the normal way. And really, it's incumbent on policyholders now to look at their wordings and ascertain whether they can take advantage of the rulings from this judgment. Great. Well, thanks very much, Paul, for your time today and taking us through all of that. And thanks, everybody, for listening.